Good morning, gentlemen. I understand that I'm supposed to be Dick Kane this morning. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Uh, we must have made some changes this spring, and I forgot to tell you, but uh, I'm glad to be here this morning. I think I was planning to be out of town, and I'm not. Uh, we are looking at a very important chapter in Romans. That's chapter 14. And just to refresh your memory, last week we saw that Paul, in his exposition of our chief ethical obligation, namely love, that one way in which we must apply the love of Jesus Christ to our neighbor is in the church and specifically in the church dealing with people who are different from ourselves. The gospel breaks down the barriers, race, ethnic background, nationality, religious background, customs and traditions. But when people get together with these different customs and traditions, they all want the church to be like them. They don't want to make any changes. They want the church to be an expression of their own family traditions. And it's usually unspoken, but there's an ongoing grab for the steering wheel in churches to make this church more like my tradition. The gospel breaks that down, Paul is teaching them. Where we disagree oftentimes are on things that we labeled adiaphora or disputable things or things of indifference, things that are just matters of preference, that don't matter that much, that have no clear sanction in the Bible. And often those are the things we disagree about. And in Rome, they had Jew and Gentile. And the Jews were quite certain that anybody who called themselves a follower of God ought to keep the traditions, ought to keep the Sabbath. It's in the Old Testament. They ought to keep the dietary laws. It's in the Old Testament. And they didn't get all this stuff about teachings about how that was not applicable for today after the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't get that. They just, they thought that these things were in the Old Testament, in the Torah. They'd been taught it all along. That that's what it meant to be a godly person, and they weren't about to give that up, and they thought everybody else should do it. Paul says, no, no, wait just a minute. In Christ, these things find their fulfillment. Circumcision finds its fulfillment. Sabbath finds its fulfillment. Dietary laws find their fulfillment, and so on. And he said the Gentiles come in without having to keep those traditions. So you all have to learn how to do a couple of things. Number one, those whose consciences are bound to things that are non-eminently biblical, namely the Jewish people, which is ironic. We would expect them to be the strong religious people. Paul calls them, he himself is Jewish, he calls the Jewish people the ones with a weak conscience because their conscience is bound to things it doesn't need to be bound to. And he says to start off with, you have to understand you have the weak conscience. Those of you who have all these moral rules that are added to the Bible, you're the ones with a weak conscience. The one with a strong conscience is the one who's bound only to the injunctions that are actually in the Bible. And then he said, secondly, after you understand which category you belong to, those of you who have the weak conscience, and I have all these additional rules and traditions and customs, need to stop judging the people who don't keep your customs. Now, that was a big deal. Stop judging. Because... The fact of the matter is, as we saw in the scriptures, we are to judge one another's behavior in areas that are eminently biblical. If someone's sleeping around with someone who's not his wife, 
and he's in your church? Well, absolutely. You judge his behavior and you go to him and insist that he cease and desist and repent. That's called judgment. We judge one another. Paul says you wouldn't be judged by God if you all judge each other within the church, 1 Corinthians 5. So there is to be judgment among us, but things that are on biblical issues. So the ones with a weak conscience had to learn not to judge the others. Of course, the most obvious application in our day is the, uh, the issue of alcohol. Some are teetotalers, and they have to believe everybody should be. You must stop judging those who think it's their freedom to drink a glass of wine. Now, at the same time, Paul says to the strong, you all be careful not to hold in contempt those who have a weak conscience and include them and welcome them into the church. And so, so you don't like fundamentalists. So you don't like people who come from a real conservative background. You welcome them in the church, even though you know they're going to be tempted to judge you for using your freedoms in Jesus Christ. So that's what we've been learning in the first part of Romans chapter 14. It's a vital principle. And we saw that from that principle, we also learn how to deal with each other on things that do matter. Okay? Paul was talking about things that don't matter, about whether you eat meat that's been strangled or the blood was left in it or not. That's, that's a Jewish concern. He said that's, a matter, that, that's an indifferent matter, a disputable matter. But we saw from that how we should be dealing with each other even on, dispute, on things that are, that are biblical matters, like, for example, predestination. Okay, we saw that's not a cardinal doctrine. In other words, one does not have to believe that in order to go to heaven. Aren't you Arminians thankful for that? And, and of course, you're saying, you know, believing in predestination, you Arminians have to admit, believing in predestination does not keep us from going to heaven, okay? So we understand the difference between cardinal doctrines that risk your very salvation and secondary doctrines, and we learn how to disagree differently depending upon the weight of the doctrinal issue. So we, we use that text to say in our lives in the church, we need to apply wisdom so that we promote peace and unity to the best of our ability. Now, there are some things you cannot compromise on and you end up having to divide over. We understand that. There are cardinal doctrines. So the things that are what we might today call non-essential, that are, that are disputable matters. Those are the matters that are, have the Bible has nothing really to say about it uh, or, or the Bible doesn't insist on it. Uh, the, the things that are essential are the things that are revealed in the Bible. But even among the essential things, there's cardinal and secondary and even tertiary doctrines. So for my money, for example, uh, if, if we were redoing church history, I wouldn't have us divide up on the issue of baptism. We'd figure out some way to live together in the church on that one. For example, if you go to where the Apostle John was in his early, in, in his late ministry, and you look at the architecture of old churches in Smyrna, you will find in that old fourth century church a baptismal font for sprinkling and a baptistry. Sorry, Presbyterians. But you find both there. And we don't know exactly how they were used. Maybe one was with infants and one was with, with adults. But nonetheless, it appeared as though that church, in that same local church, they performed the sacrament in two different ways. I don't know, just a hint. But we're long past that, unfortunately. And so we'll live with what we have. But what's in your heart? 
Do you know the difference between something that's a weighty matter and something that's a light matter? Do you know the difference between something that's in the Bible and something that's not in the Bible? A wise man is always developing his conscience very carefully and giving grace to others who disagree with him. Now, when we move to the second half of Romans 14, our text today, we see that Paul is going to press us a little further. And he especially is going to press those with a strong conscience, with those who feel free to do certain things that other brothers don't feel free to do. And he's going to say to them here, not only do you tolerate, not only do you not pass judgment on them or not hold them in contempt, no, you actually surrender some of your freedoms on their behalf. So you're, not only your attitude, but your behavior actually changes in order to promote the interests of the overall family. So now he's, he's gone from preaching to meddling. Okay, now he's going he's to mess with my life. So that, and you always expect that with, with Paul or the other apostles. Jesus, they're always preaching, aren't they? They're always messing with your stuff. Well, that's what he's going to do here in Romans 14. We're going to see how serious the apostle and how serious Jesus takes the church. That we've got to protect the integrity of the unity and peace and purity of the church. And that means you have to sacrifice. You have to change your behavior. You have to change your ways. If you've gotten married and you have a successful marriage, you know what I'm talking about. You just don't live the same way you did before you got married. You made some changes. And Paul's saying... Here's another organization, another human institution that you enter into and it changes your behavior and the way you act and what you do and the freedoms that you give up. I remember one of my friends said that right before he got married, his mother said to him, well, son, how do you feel? And he said, well, I feel like I'm getting ready to lose my freedom. And she said, freedom to do what? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So Paul's going to challenge you. Freedom to do what? What do you want to do with that freedom? So uh, we as Americans uh, will find this text particularly challenging because that's the very root of our society is individual freedom. When you fly into New York Harbor and you're so glad to get home, and you know how it is, you're, you're on the starboard side and you look out the window and there she is, the Statue of Liberty. Give me your tired, your poor, your humbled masses yearning to be free, right? And then we fly in with a little tear coming down our cheek, the Statue of Liberty, and we recall the words of Thomas Jefferson, the Declaration of Independence, that uh, we're, we're endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. I wonder if the word unalienable actually is a word. I thought it was inalienable, but I don't know what. Unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Patrick Henry, give me liberty or what? Death. I'd rather die than lose my liberty. And then another hero of of recent times, Rosa Parks, here's what she said. She said, I'd like to be remembered as a person who wanted to be free so other people would be also free. And of course, Jesus said to us in his teachings, he said, you will know the truth and the truth will do what? Set you free. And the Apostle Paul says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom, freedom, freedom. So it's in our our DNA. So someone's messing with our freedom, we're going to have an immediate resistance to it. But Paul's going to mess with us. Let's look at it. Romans 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, 
but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. For whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. All right. Let's look at our text. First of all, in verse 13, the first point we want to observe is the instruction that's here, and the instruction is don't trip up your brother. That's the big commandment that runs throughout this text. Don't trip him up. Don't cause him to stumble. A stumbling block is something, of course, you know, in, in uh, biblical times, there were no streetlights, all right? So you walk out at night and somebody puts a big stone in the middle of the pathway, you're going to fall down. <laughs> you know, it's a stumbling block. Don't put stuff like that in front of people. Don't cause them to falter or fall down. And he says, not only do you not put, you do not judge, pass judgment on one another, but don't ever trip each other up. So this is, this is a higher standard. Now, in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, I've mentioned those texts here, you'll find a similar argument that has to do with meat offered to idols. This is not what this text is about. This text is about eating meat that's improperly prepared, uh, non-kosher meat. And, but in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, he's talking about meat offered to idols. And you'll find the same argument there, same stumbling block principle. And our job is to watch out for each other and be sure that each other is not tripped up. Uh, and so what you'll find here from the very beginning, Paul is saying this, that when you come to Jesus Christ, you give your whole life to him. And your task is to walk as closely with him as he gives you grace to do. You want to be like him. You want to imitate him. You want to take on his attitudes, his heart, the way he speaks, the way he treats people. You want to become like Jesus Christ. We know that. But what Paul is adding to that is when you come to Jesus Christ, then you also come to him with a concern for the entire body of Christ so that you want the whole church to be like him. You want the whole church to have his attitude, to share his love together. And you take the responsibility to help this family. If you've been in a functional family or if you're in one right now, you know that you all care for the whole family and how well they're doing. That's all Paul is saying. You cannot become a Christian 
without being deeply concerned about how the whole family is doing. That's the reason that, that many of us would say there's just really no way to obey the New Testament without being an active, participating member of a local church and giving yourself to that church because your obligation is not just individual sanctification, it's corporate sanctification. So your life is going to be shaped in part by that goal to bring everyone along to become perfect in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's going to change your behavior. And the first principle here is not only don't pass judgment on people unnecessarily, but don't trip them up. And secondly, look at verse 14 and we'll see what the conflict is. The conflict is liberty or love. Liberty or love. Sometimes love demands the sacrifice of your liberty. And once again, marriage clearly shows that to you. You know, any relationship shows that to you. If you love people, you are going to sacrifice some of your liberties. And unfortunately, the American society hasn't picked up on that. You can see it. We, uh, you know, any agenda that really gains rapid public approval is usually based on the idea of individual freedoms. Uh, you can see it in the, the gay marriage uh, popularity. It's all tied into this issue of freedom, to be able to do what you want. And that carries the day with Americans. Uh, and so they've tied their cause into the basic doctrine of what it means to be an American, that is to be individually free. But Paul says that's not the end of the day. Individual freedom is not the highest goal. The highest goal is love. And he says, love, with love, you'll sacrifice your freedom. See what he says in verse 14. I know and I'm persuaded of two things. Number one, that in Jesus, nothing is unclean in itself. Food is not in and of itself unclean. I'm persuaded of that, he says, number one. But number two, I'm also persuaded it's unclean for someone who thinks it's unclean. So you, you have two things at war. One is, my conscience is clear. I have a strong conscience, Paul says. I know I'm free to eat meat that's been strangled. I know that I'm free to eat non-kosher meat. But I also know that some people don't believe that. And for them, they're not free to eat it. So here's the conflict. On the one hand is freedom. And on the other hand is love. And our love appreciates the fact that people's consciences are bound sometimes to things they don't fully understand. And it's true that the Jews did not fully understand how the coming of Christ had changed the dietary laws in the Old Testament. And it wasn't just that they weren't smart enough. They just couldn't bring themselves to let go of what their mama told them all those years in the home. You just don't eat that stuff. It's wrong. You go to hell if you eat it. I mean, they'd, they'd heard that all their lives. And as we mentioned last time, Daniel was their hero. And Daniel was willing to give up his whole life. He was willing to go in the lion's den for prayer and for dietary laws. And so I'm not giving it up. I'm going to stand with Daniel. That, that was the way they were thinking. And Paul understands that. And he understands their conscience is bound. Let me give you an example. I remember my predecessor in the previous church I was serving in Lookout Mountain uh, Presbyterian Church, uh, George Long, one time I had a parishioner who came to him and, and uh, he was talking about the issue of alcohol, about drinking. And the man said, um, you know, uh, we have this debate and, and uh, you know, I, I want to drink. And George says, well, you know, the Bible gives you the freedom to have a, a glass of wine. You're not to be drunk, but you have the freedom to drink. And then the man said, now I know I'm not supposed to, but, and George says, now hold on just a minute. 
You just said something different. You just said you know you're not supposed to. So you shouldn't have a glass of wine. You see what George was saying? The issue is, first of all, does the Bible forbid it? But secondly, does your conscience forbid it? And if it does, then the act of love on George's part was to advise his brother not to break his own conscience. Because as we'll see in a minute, conscience is extremely important to every one of us. So once again, we saw last week, you, we want to train our conscience. Paul understood conscience is very important. It's not to be violated, but it is to be trained. Consciences are not perfect, but they are sacred. And think about this. God created us with a conscience. God reveals himself to us, first of all, through creation, secondly, through the Bible. In creation, you have the birds and the trees and the flowers and the bees. You have everything out there that shows us there is a God. His fingerprints are everywhere. Also in creation, you have a conscience. And God has given us a conscience to look at creation and to infer that there is a deity. He's given us that ability as human beings. So our conscience is a gift from God. And in some ways, it's that still small voice. Now, in actually with, with Elijah, the still small voice was the voice of God. And we want to be careful that with our consciences, we're not equating that to infallible revelation. But there is this still small voice in your conscience that God gave us, and it's not to be violated. It's to be trained, but it's not to be violated. So we need to take conscience very seriously. When you look at pornography, what are you left with? A violation of your conscience. Most of you have been trained sufficiently to have a conscientious objection to participating in that industry, and yet you participate in it, and you allow your lust to run free, and, you, and your big problem is you have a violated conscience. You should obey that conscience. It's there for a reason. It's a gift of God. It's one of the ways in which he guides you. So Paul is very aware of this. Paul talks about his own conscience, and he'll say at times, I have a clean conscience. Now he'll go on to say, but I don't judge myself, only God judges me. So my conscience is not the ultimate judge. God alone is the ultimate judge. But it's important that I have a clean conscience. And Paul will speak of his own conscience as being clean or clear. He's, he's abiding by his own conscience. So in other words, we say, I'll follow the light best I understand the light. In other words, that means I'm following my conscience. That's a very important principle in the scriptures. And it's a very important principle of humanity. That's the reason that, as we mentioned last time, it's so tragic that the Supreme Court disallowed the application of conscience in warfare. Back in the 70s, the Supreme Court disallowed your conscientious objection to a particular war because you think the war is evil. That's a horrible decision. It says to Americans, your conscience no longer matters. And that's what you get in a lot of the legislation now that is seeking to force everyone to conform to permissive standards in society. It's basically, your conscience doesn't matter. Paul says, your conscience does matter. So, and your neighbor's conscience matters so much that you have to realize you're walking on sacred ground and you better not stumble up his, him with respect to his conscience. So in a society that's shaped by Christian men and women, you'll find a society that always respects the neighbor's conscience, even though the conscience is not perfect. We respect it, and that's what Paul is saying here. Uh, we sometimes will have to choose between our own personal liberty and love. And it's true. I know in my own life, 
you know, a lot of us may have a standard. I'm just not going to go see R-rated movies. And there, there may be different reasons for it. Maybe the language is just so offensive. You feel like you're just being demeaned by, being, by hearing that movie and paying money to sit there and have them just throw blasphemies at you over and they just wave over you. And I'm sure some of you, like myself, have gone to an R-rated movie and you've heard all this and you just have to get up and leave. It's just too much. But some have a standard of just not ever going to an R-rated movie. And I have some friends who will, will go to movies that are ex very explicit sexually, and I'm just going, I can't do that. But somehow in their conscience, they're free to do it. Well, I want them to respect my conscience. I'm not free to do that. My conscience tells me not to go do that. But some of my brothers have consciences that are freer. That you know, maybe some movie critics or things, people who really enjoy uh, looking at the arts and critiquing them from a Christian perspective, and they'll get into those arts in ways that I, I just can't. My conscience holds me back. So he needs to respect my conscience. I need to respect the other consciences that are around me, and realize that we're all seeking to serve the Lord if we're His people. Now, the solution, of course, is not to pursue your liberty. But verses 15 through 23, the solution is to love, which requires sacrifice. That's the solution Paul gives us here. He says in verse 15, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. So if I am doing something that grieves the conscience of my brother, then I'm, I've stopped thinking about him, and I'm only thinking about myself. Think of others, says Paul, more highly than yourself. Now, this is not a precise application of this concept, but it, it reminds me of a time. This is years ago. This would be 40 years ago. My friend John Wood, who's the pastor of Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church in Knoxville, his parents were living at the time. And uh, we were all, uh, uh, John and his family and I and my family were living in Boston. And his, his parents, elderly parents, came to visit. Uh, elderly, they're probably my age. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Yeah, they were elderly parents. So <laughs> the perspective of a 25-year-old is really interesting. Uh, so anyway, his elderly parents came to visit. And John's dad was a pastor, but he also had some little neurotic habits, you know, and John would make fun of him every once in a while. And he just, you know, he just, I'll give you an example. When John's wife was asking for drink orders, uh, he said, you know, somebody said, I'll have iced tea or I'll have a Coke or I'll have some ice water. He said, I'll have some warm water. Now, who asked for warm water? And you're going, warm water? What's that all about? You know, something to do with his digestive system or something? I don't know. But it was just, you know, you kind of hold, hold your mouth, you know, warm water. And then John's wife got around to John's mother and said, Mom, what would you like? And she said, I'll just take some warm water. And I wanted to get down and kiss that woman's feet. I mean, even at 25 years of age, I understood what she was doing. She was protecting her husband. You know, okay, my husband's weird. I'm going to be weird with him. <laughs> and I'm going to try to make it seem to all these people that it's normal to want warm water <laughs> with your dinner. Uh, it was just this little act, little act of surrendering what she wanted to drink out of love to protect her husband. And I think that's what Paul is saying. You realize the church is the bride of Christ. Let's just protect her. Let's do things that care for her. And we, sometimes they're little, little things that reflect your attitude of service to one another. Sometimes they're very big things. Uh, so 
The solution is love. Now, first of all, in, in verse 15b, notice that unrestrained liberty can destroy your brother. This is the big danger. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now, this is a really strong statement. Do not destroy your brother? You mean because he thinks that we shouldn't drink and I, I take a drink of wine, I could destroy him? Well, here's how uh, the word destroy here can be used in a number of contexts. And you saw this in Stott's commentary. Stott says, look, if someone's been saved, you're not going to unsave them by having them violate their conscience. What you're going to do is just break them down. That's what Paul means by destroy. You're just going to break them down. We're supposed to be doing the opposite, building them up. But you're breaking them down. How do you break them down? Here's how you break them down. You convince them to imitate you even though their conscience is still bound not to do what you're doing. So see, your conscience is free to do something, but you're encouraging them to follow your conscience instead of their conscience, and therefore they're violating their own conscience. And when you do that, once again, this is the tragedy of the American culture that erases the idea of individual conscience and conscientious objection. When you erase it, you're destroying one another. You are teaching each other either not to have a conscience or not to follow your conscience. And that's very, very destructive. If you read Stott on this, uh, let me just quote him. I thought he put it very well in, in commenting upon this verse. He said, did Christ love him enough to die for him? And shall we not love him enough to refrain from uh, not uh, violating his conscience? Did Christ sacrifice himself for his well-being? And shall we assert ourselves to his harm? Did Christ die to save him? And shall we not care if we destroy him? These are very strong words. But the Apostle Paul is saying, when you don't observe each other's consciences and look for what each other considers to be inviolate and try to guard and protect that, you are, you are in a, at least an indifferent mode that's very destructive. Secondly, your very liberty, verse 16, can become an evil. Your liberty is a really good thing. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Jesus Christ came to set us free from the commandments of men, from all the old wives' tales that your mama taught you. You're free from all that. You're not bound to the four-leaf clover. You're not bound to the rabbit's foot anymore. You're free from all the superstitions and all the stupidity that was foisted upon you and the things you've heard. You're free from all that. You're free from from witchcraft and from people who think they can put hocus pocus on you and curse you and all that. You're free from all that. So why would you do something that causes your freedom to be brought into question and to make your freedom an evil? Your freedom is a good thing. So Paul is saying, don't misuse your freedom in such a way that freedom itself becomes a bad word. And that's what's happening in our country. We're justifying all forms of evil based on freedom. And freedom is getting a very bad word, a very bad reputation. And when countries around the world, and some of you go to them, and if you talk to people, especially in the Muslim world, they'll say, yeah, we see what your freedom does. You just export pornography everywhere. It's so wicked. The United States is a Christian nation, they say, and it's wicked. So you're giving freedom and all the things that you value a very bad name when you use your freedom to destroy people. Paul says clearly in Galatians, uh, you know, which is a letter where he is 
striving to have them protect their religious freedom through justification, through faith alone. Don't take on the circumcision party and think that you have to be circumcised in order to be accepted by God and all this. And he fights with all of his life and he pronounces curses on those who, who teach differently. I mean, he's very strong about it. But then he says, Galatians 5.13, don't use your freedom uh, to promote the desires of your flesh. Use your freedom to serve people. And when you use your freedom to serve people, you give freedom a good name. And it ought to have a good name because it's precious to us. It was purchased for us by the cross of Calvary. Now, when you come to verses 17 through 23, we really kind of come to the end of his argument here. And there's several components of it. But basically what he's saying in 17 through 23 is, look, there's some things that are more important than your freedom. And as you know, in Rick Warren's great book, you know, The Purpose Driven Life, what's the first thing he says in the first chapter? It's not about you. There's some things that are more important than you. And certainly some things that are more important than your freedom. Well, what are those things? Well, let's look at them. And Paul reminds us of them. First of all, how about the kingdom of God, verse 17? The kingdom of God is more important than you are. We're promoting the kingdom. We're not promoting you. You get promoted in due time. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time. If you want all your freedoms and be able to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it, don't worry about it. You're going there. You're getting there. But for now, we have an assignment. And the assignment, Jesus said, is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you later. He doesn't use the word later. I added that. But you'll get all these other things. He's got it all stored up for you. Don't worry about him. He's handling his side of this equation. He's saying, I've got the kingdom ready for you. Right now, I want you to seek it with all your heart, no matter what it costs you. And Paul is showing us how in these little things, little decisions you make, little decisions you make in relationships about whether you're going to use your freedom to do this or freedom to do that at the expense of other people, it really is reflecting your view of why you're here and what the kingdom of God is all about. And you'll see that he says, look, let's talk about the kingdom for a, matter, for a minute. It's not a matter of eating and drinking. So for you, maybe your income and the house you live in, the car you drive, the vacations you take, maybe that's what you consider really important. But the kingdom is not all about all that. Here's what the kingdom is about. Righteousness and peace and joy. That's what it's about. And those things you can't buy with a dollar. Those things come through the gospel. And Paul has shown us that in Romans. Let's take those three words. Righteousness. He says the gospel is the way to enjoy the righteousness of God. Because it's not the righteousness, as we've seen, that you perform. It's a righteousness that's revealed from heaven that comes to us through faith from Jesus Christ. We get his righteousness. We saw that in Romans chapter 3. What about peace? He says, when you've received righteousness this way, you now have, Romans 5.1, the peace of God. So you have, you have peace with God. You have in, inner peace. You have the peace of God. So you have peace with Him and you have His peace in your heart. Why? Because your righteousness is revealed from heaven. And He says, what does that do for you? It brings you joy. And we've seen the, in, we'll see in chapter 15, He talks about the joy that comes to us in the gospel. This has all been purchased for us from Christ. These are the things that we're advancing in the world. We want the whole world to know how to be righteous before God. We want the whole world 
to be at peace with God and with one another. We want the whole world to have joy. And these are the traits that we're to be expressing and experiencing. There's the kingdom. It's not about what you eat, what you drink, how much money you have, etc., etc. These material, temporary things that are passing away. Secondly, he says your love, uh, or, or rather, uh, there, the second thing that's more important than your liberty is pleasing God for heaven's sakes. Look at verse 18. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So you're going to win friends and influence people if you do this for one thing, he says in verse 18. But primarily what you're going to do is find that this is acceptable to God. This is what God wants in your life. So more important than you doing whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it is simply to, to please the Lord. Here's what Jesus said about his own life in John 8, 29. He said, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus did that 100% of the time, 24-7. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Why did he die on the cross? To raise up some brothers who would seek always to do what is pleasing to him. And that means we sacrifice any of our freedoms. And we do it joyfully. We do it joyfully. When you get married or when you have children or when you own a company and you have employees and you are not taking a paycheck home because you want to be able to write their paycheck. And some of you have had to do that. You do that joyfully because you are sacrificing your own well-being for the well-being of other people for whom you're responsible. And John put it this way. He said, God answers our prayers. In other words, he says, whatever we ask, we receive from him. Why? Because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. We're the people who seek to please the Lord. That's the reason we have this ongoing conversation with him. That's the reason he's continually answering our prayers because our whole life is about the kingdom and our whole life is about pleasing him. And that puts all these other little dinky things in your life in context. The things that you normally argue with about, uh, about with your wife. Dinky, stupid, disputable things. That's what we argue about. And this puts them all into perspective. Get your life focused for heaven's sakes. Figure out why you're here. It's about the kingdom and it's about pleasing the one who created you and redeemed you. And then it'll put into, frame, into the proper framework all these other things. And then thirdly, verse, uh, verses 19 through 21, it's about edifying your brother. Edifying your brother is more important than exercising your liberty. Look at verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. That's a huge task to go into any church and to become a peacemaker. To go into any small group fellowship. To go into Amen Bible study. And to make yourself sensitive to the conflicts that come up among the brothers, even in this room. To love these people enough to find out about their lives and to find out where there's a lack of peace. To enter any church and not to be scared away or disgusted with the conflicts that happen in that church, but move toward them. Some of you are really good about this. I've seen it over and over again. You move toward those conflicts. Why do you move toward them? Not because you like to get involved in conflict, but because you like to bring peace. And Paul is saying, we'll give up anything in order that we might bring peace to our brothers. So, and if you do this, I'm telling you, it's going to cost you your time. It's going to cost you sometimes your popularity. It's going to cost you your money. Oftentimes, it costs you money to bring peace. 
Because a lot of times the disputes are over money and over the distribution of things. Acts chapter 6, our first big dispute was over the, over the distribution of material goods among believers. So anytime you get involved, it's going to cost you. Paul is saying there's something more important than having your nice little gated community, having your nice secure life, having everything in order, being able to do what you want to do, and go on the vacations you want to go on, exercising all your liberties. There's something more important than that, and that's to bring peace to everybody you can bring peace to. And, you know, of course, in Hebrew, it's shalom, bringing well-being and contentment to everybody. You, you look at this city, 127 neighborhoods. 97 of them don't have peace. 97 of them are in arrears. 11% of our population lives in a neighborhood of choice where there's shalom. There's police protection, garbage pickup, the yards are mowed, good schools, 11% of the population. You're a Christian. If you are, then you say, I want to bring shalom to everybody I can bring shalom to. And that's going to cost me. Sometimes it's called taxes. Sometimes it's your time on a weekend to go help somebody. Sometimes it's being a big brother to a kid who doesn't have a dad. Or being a surrogate father to a kid who doesn't have a dad. It's all kinds of things. Because you are willing to sacrifice your freedoms for the sake of other people, bringing them peace. Not only peace, but he uses the word in verse 19, mutual upbuilding, edification we call it. What, what is edification? You know, an edifice is the front of a building. You build an edifice. Paul is saying what our interest is, is in edification, the building up of the structure of each other's lives. So once again, when you become a Christian, you are concerned about your life being built up. That's the reason we're all here, to be built up in the Word of God. But you never do that as a solo act. You're being built up as you also build up other people, and that's part of your being built up. And Paul is saying, that's our task. That's the reason that we're here. It's the reason you haven't gone home yet. And he says, do not then, for the sake of food, destroy or tear down the edifice that God's already put up. So God is, has saved a brother, building him up, and you go tearing him down. Be very careful, he says. You're dealing with God when you're dealing with a brother. He cares about his, his son. Everything is indeed clean. He, he cites it again. Look at verse, verse nine, uh, 20. Everything is indeed clean. Paul's making clear, look, I'm not saying that you should change your opinions about your freedom. You know, when I was, when I was in seminary, one of our professors, Charles Schaffle was his name. He was a delightful, quiet, unassuming, godly man. And Dr. Schaffel was this amazing person who had learned to live on just a meager salary. I mean, he had been in the teaching profession all of his life. He had never made much money. I'll never forget as a seminarian, listening to Dr. Schaffel, who had three children, I think it was, and he was telling all of us seminarians, this is in the uh, early, well, late 70s, early 80s, right around 1980, he was telling us how to live as a family on $6,000 a year. Now, today, that'd be $20,000. Now, just think about that. A man's going to get up and tell you how to live on $20,000 a year. And I just sat there just in amazement, listening to all the techniques, he, all the rummage sales he would go to, <laughs> all, the, 
all the self-repairs of his own home, how he found this deal and that deal and just learned to live on a little bit. I was just very impressed. And I, I was convicted. Obviously, I remember it 35 years later. Uh, but was he saying, all of y'all have to live on $6,000 a year? No. But in his conscience, Dr. Schaffel's conscience, he really couldn't live the Christian life unless he really forsook many of the privileges he could otherwise have. That was part of his lifestyle, part of what he felt was important. But he wasn't imposing it upon all the rest of us. And so, indeed, it's fine to have more money than $20,000. And I'm grateful for that. So Paul says, I know you're free. I'm not saying you all have to live on $6,000 a year. He said, I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So it's wrong for us to... In, for example, let me get, let's, if, since we're talking not, not about wine but about money, let's think about this for a moment. You know, sometimes in our church, people you know, like to take nice vacations and they'll go ski in Colorado and they'll go in the Caribbean or something like that. And then they look at some person in their Sunday school class who's making about $50,000 a year and they want him to go on vacation. And he shouldn't go. He doesn't have the money. But, oh, come on, you can go. Watch yourself very carefully. Think about this neighbor. If he goes on that vacation, he's just taking tuition money out of his kid's bank account. I mean, just, just be very, very careful with how you live. Paul is saying, I know you're free. I know there's nothing necessarily wrong with a ski trip to Colorado. I'm just saying, would you please consider the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, which has poor people in it, it has middle-income people in it. It has people who should not be taking a vacation like that. And you shouldn't be taking those vacations in a way that make them jealous so that they violate their own financial conscience to try to keep up with you. Just be very careful, he's saying. Everything is indeed, is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So ultimately, he's saying this. If your trip to Colorado would cause somebody to stumble, you're better off not going. Good enough? So, for example, in my house, uh, the only time we have beer in the refrigerator is when the kids are there. <laughs> they put it there. And I just don't. I don't have it there. I don't want anybody to come in my house and open the refrigerator. Oh, look at the pastor. He's drinking beer every night. You know? So let's, we just won't have that problem. It's just easier for me not to be a beer drinker. It's just, I can, I'm free to drink beer, but I just, it's just easier not to. Why would I even risk that I would hurt somebody else's life? So lastly, Paul is saying that your conscience and your neighbor's conscience is more important than your liberty to do whatever you want to do. The faith that you have, look at verse 22, keep between yourself and God. Now he's not saying, stop evangelizing. <laughs> he's not saying, no more theological discussions around here. Keep your faith to yourself, between you and God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, keep this aspect of your faith. Keep your faith that sets you free between you and God. You're free to spend your money how you want. You're free to drink wine as you want. You're free to do that. But it's going to stumble somebody else. Just keep it to yourself. It's between you and the Lord. You can thank the Lord for whatever freedoms he gives you. Whatever he sets you free from, thank him for it. But if somebody else's conscience is involved, you be very careful. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. So he's saying, you don't need to pass judgment on yourself and you don't need anybody else to pass judgment on themselves. 
Uh, look, for example, at 1 John chapter 3, if you will. Uh, and here John has a, a very important comment about passing judgment on ourselves. He says in verse 21 that, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So we want to have confidence before God. Therefore, let, let our hearts not condemn us. That's the reason you don't want anybody violating their conscience. You don't want them to come under self-condemnation. They lose their confidence before God, which has to do with their assurance of their salvation. And the assurance of your salvation is at the very heart of your Christian ethic. It's because you know that He loves you. It's because you know you're going to be with Him for eternal life that you want to live for Him and sacrifice for Him. So if we undermine your confidence, we undermine your ability to serve the Lord. You can see how, how important this all is. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. And look at this last phrase. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Think about that. So my faith is all comprehensive. It informs my conscience. My faith is not perfect, and therefore my conscience is not perfect. But this faith is my, my whole context of everything that I believe about God and about salvation and about myself, everything that I believe about what He's revealed, about what the world is and what my task is here, my mission. My faith includes my conscience and everything that I'm doing. If it's not coming out of that grid, it's sin. So once again, you can see how important then conscience is to us. So we want our faith to inform our conscience. I want each of you to be free from the burdens of traditions and old wives' tales and superstitions and even biblical laws that have found their complete fulfillment in Jesus Christ. I want you to be free from them. But if you're not, I want your conscience to be protected. And I want you to protect the conscience of other people for all these reasons. Because why? There's some things more important than Lady Liberty. And it's the living God. His kingdom, His pleasure, His children, and the consciences of His church. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the gift of conscience. And we pray that You'll help us as we seek to nurture our own consciences and the consciences of those around us. And then, Lord, as it leads us to live in community lovingly together, we pray that you'll help us increasingly, especially right here in Memphis, Tennessee, right here in East Memphis, Tennessee, to live with people from different backgrounds, with different cultural traditions and preferences, and to learn how to defer to each other and to surrender our own preferences in order to promote the peace, purity, and unity of your multi-ethnic, multi-socioeconomic church, the church that you called out of darkness into your marvelous light. So we pray, God, that you'll give us grace to be men who believe and men who, <clears throat> whose consciences enjoy and thank you for all the freedoms that you give us and men who are willing to lay aside our freedoms in order to bless all of your children here and around the world. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.